If you have a copy of the scriptures, let's look together this morning at Mark chapter 14. I'll read for us uh, verses 12 through 28. Mark 14, 12 through 28. This is God's word for you this morning. It's God's word for me this morning. It's what God wants us to deal with and think about. And the first day of unleavened bread... When they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there, Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask that you would cause us to rejoice in our Redeemer. Cause us to know our worth and the worth of Christ. Cause us to sense in a more profound way our unworthiness and the worthiness of Jesus as Savior. Lord, as we look at this passage together, would you open up our minds and hearts? Would you cause the truth that is here to penetrate deep within us, to bring us to a realization that I've already asked? Take your word and pierce us that we may know life, life with you, forgiveness, joy, hope that what has been done would overwhelm us with thanks and joy and obedience and gratitude and hope. 
We pray this, Jesus, because without you, we have nothing and can do nothing. We pray in your name, for your glory, for our good. Amen. As we're here in Mark chapter 14, we're close to the end of the book. And I don't want us to lose the big picture. From the beginning, don't forget, from the beginning, I've tried to press upon all of us that the purpose for God writing us the gospel accounts is to teach us, is to show us, is so we can read blow by blow his victorious assault on the kingdom of darkness. God wants us to understand that he has done something incredibly profound in the work of Christ. He wants us to know that he has victoriously assaulted the kingdom of darkness. And he wants to do that primarily because we oftentimes are pessimistic about all kinds of things. Well, on the other hand, we're often overly optimistic about our abilities and what we think. And God wants us to view the world he wants us to view our lives from what he has done and what he has said. So he's given us the gospel accounts. Because he has victoriously assaulted the kingdom of darkness in the coming of Christ and what Christ has done. And remember, that's very important. Because oftentimes in our lives, although we could pass a test, most of us, if we were given a written test of who Jesus is, most of us would pass that test. Most of us know in our minds that Jesus is God and Jesus is man and he came and lived in this world and lived a perfect life and died and rose again. But the problem is, is that oftentimes what we know of Christ just stays in our head. It doesn't get to our heart enough. Because functionally, the way that we live our lives every day is with another view of Christ. Sometimes we live our lives as if Jesus is like this superhero. He's really strong. He can do amazing things, even miraculous things. But he's come into this world to just beat the bad guys and protect all the good people. Oftentimes that's how we functionally live. We live as if Jesus just came to beat the bad guy, and even now he's after the bad guy, so I don't want to be a bad guy. I need to be a good person so that Jesus will protect me. But that's not really what Christ has done at all. That's not his outlook on the world at all. And that's not the way we should live. We should not have that functional, practical way of living. To live as if that's true about Jesus, that he's just some kind of weird superhero. We ought to think of him the way that God shows us. That's why we're going through the gospel of Mark. That's why we're looking at it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, story by story. What I want you to see from this passage today, what I want you to know from this passage, what I want you to take, what to take away, what I want to take away to be, is I want you to know that Jesus sees our lives and our needs far more clearly than we do. What I want you to leave these doors today and go out and, and love your families, love your neighbors, fulfill your callings this week, the other six days, I want you to leave here knowing that God sees your life and your needs far more clearly than I do, far more clearly than you do. And he does that. He shows that to us 
with a meal. He shows that to us with a meal. You ready to dive in? Is that clear? Let's dive in. Let's look at the what of the meal. Notice, that how, notice how this section starts. There's this meal that's going to go on, and the disciples are aware of it. They actually come to Jesus in verse 12, and, and they're like, Jesus, what's the plan? It's Passover time. It's time to eat this meal. What's the plan? But you've got to understand, there's a whole lot that's under this question that gives rise to this question that causes the disciples to ask this question. You see, there's a plan there are people who have planned to take Christ and kill him. There's a bounty on his head. Remember verse 10 and 11 of this chapter? Judas has decided that he is going to betray, excuse me, the Lord Jesus. And he's actually received payment for it. People are looking for an opportunity to take him. People are looking for an opportunity to seize him. Remember, they've got to do it by stealth. But they want to eliminate Christ. If you look in, a, in John's account, what you'll find in chapter 11 is that the chief priests and the scribes were going around town and they, they were telling everyone, hey, if, if you see Jesus, let us know so we can come and take him and find him. We can come and find him and take him and, and do what we want. You see, the disciples know that there's a plan to overthrow Jesus. They understand what's going on. They also know that it's the Passover meal. And here they are asking this question. Jesus, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? How are we going to eat this meal when there are all these people that want to take you and kill you? What are we going to do? Well, Jesus lays out the plan. What he tells them is in verse 17, I'll see you in the evening. Before the evening, as maybe it was easier for him to not be in the open during the day. What I want you all to do is I want you to go to Jerusalem, go to the city, and I will see you at night. And when you go to Jerusalem, look for this guy who's carrying water and follow him. And whenever he gets back to the house, follow him into the house. And when you meet the owner of the house, ask the owner for the room. Tell them we need a room. And what you'll find is that there will be an upper room. There'll be a large room in that house. Go into that house, ask that man, go into that room, and there prepare the meal. Go on ahead. If you put yourselves in the disciples' sandals for a minute, surely... You were thinking to yourself, are you sure this is going to happen this way? I mean, this is kind of strange, isn't it? We're just going to walk into town and look for a guy like carrying water? Maybe in your life with Christ, you feel like a lot of your life is like that. You know very clearly what Jesus has told you, and it still doesn't make all that much sense, does it? And yet, if you look back over your life, you've gone, you've done what he says, and you have observed, you have experienced, you can testify, you can declare, yes, Jesus has wanted me to do some really strange things that I didn't know what to do, that I didn't want to do. It didn't make sense, but yet I did what he wanted me to do. And he worked out all the details that everything went just like he planned. So the disciples go into Jerusalem, and that's exactly what happened. 
Look also with me in the text about what's said around the meal. See, Jesus meets up with them later that evening, and he tells them in verse 18, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And the disciples in verse 19 immediately began to respond, is it, is it I, is it me? Oh, am I going to do this? Then you notice after the meal, if you look in the verses following in verse 26 and 27 and 28, what you find there is Jesus tell them, well, this is what's going to happen. The shepherd is going to get struck and all the sheep are going to shatter. Scatter, excuse me, not shatter. He says, someone is going to come and they're going to take me and all of you are going to run. You're going to run away. Some of you are going to deny me. Obviously, one is going to betray. But they're all going to run. And as you might imagine, since Peter was there, Peter responded, not me. Jesus, even if everyone denies you, if everyone begins to run away, if everyone starts sprinting, I won't. I won't deny you. I won't leave. And then you read in verse 31. It wasn't just Peter that said that. The disciples all followed suit. After hearing Peter, they said, we won't go anywhere either. We'll stay there with you. We won't go anywhere. You see, this is what's happening around the meal. That's what's going on. That's the plan of how the meal is supposed to get prepared. That's what was said around the meal, before the meal and after the meal. So now we need to look at the why of the meal. Why is this meal so important? Why is, this, why is Jesus using this meal? Why is this meal teaching us something so profound? Well, the first thing we need to know and understand is that the meal is beautiful. The meal is supposed to be moving. It's supposed to move you. It's supposed to move me. It's supposed to move his people. You see, this meal, this Passover meal, has been practiced for more than a thousand, a thousand years. And the meal goes something like this. Here's the broad framework of the meal, just so you can understand what's going on. They would always start out with one cup of wine. And those gathered would drink that cup of wine together. And that was always followed by a question. Somebody would ask the host, why are we doing this? They've been practicing this for a thousand years. The first cup and then someone is appointed and they say, why are we doing this? And then the answer would be given. We're doing this because our God has acted in history. We're doing this because our God rescued us and delivered us. We're doing this because we are remembering that he pulled us out of darkness and brought us into a relationship with him. We're doing this because we were in bondage and we were enslaved and we could not do anything to free ourselves. We're celebrating this meal because our God pursued us and he brought us out. And it wasn't because we were such a wonderful people. 
He did it because he wanted to have people to worship him and to praise him and to rejoice in his power and rejoice in his love and rejoice in his grace. And I'm sure they said a lot more to explain. Following that, they would drink a third cup of wine, excuse me, a second cup of wine, and they would break bread together, and then they would enjoy a meal. And then the third cup of wine would come, and they would enjoy the third cup together, and then the fourth cup would come. You see, what we have here in Mark 14 and 22 through 25 is that Jesus breaks in on the third cup. And he says, this actually is about me. He breaks in and said, this bread is actually about me. I am the bread that is broken for you. I am the Passover. And you know what he says here? That he's not going to drink this anymore until the coming of the kingdom? You see, that means that in this meal here on this night that Jesus left the fourth cup and he didn't touch it. I'm leaving the cup there because this meal is pointing us towards something else, something ultimate, something final that's coming years and years and years down the road. You see, this meal was supposed to be something beautiful and it was supposed to move his people. And for us, it leaves us with a certain sense of expectation and hope. You see, this meal is really a celebration of salvation. It's not just the meal that celebrated God's people coming out of Egypt and God rescuing them, God putting a substitute in their place. That was all pointing toward this night and pointing toward what would happen with the coming of Christ in his death. It was a celebration of salvation, and that's so important for us to think about. Because we live in a culture that is so confused about what salvation even is. Have you ever noticed songs that you can hear on the radio? Perhaps you haven't listened to these, and that's fine. You have that choice. Whether you're picking country music, big and rich, right? You know this song? I won't give you all the words. But in one way, it's describing how one individual has been waiting for salvation all night long. Talking about sex. One big way that our culture views salvation is seen in sex. Those of you who are Bruno Mars fans feel like you're locked out of heaven. Why? Because of lack of intimacy. We live in a culture that defines salvation as sex. We live in a culture that looks at salvation as finding purpose. Because when you don't have purpose, then you feel like you're not saved. But when you find purpose, when you find out what you're supposed to do, when you find the career path you're supposed to take, or when you find that relationship, you feel like you've been saved. Saved from darkness, or or saved from lack of clarity, or, or saved from purposelessness. We live in a culture that defines salvation in all kinds of strange ways. Have you noticed this? 
Again, you may not want to listen to those songs, and that's completely fine, but you can't ignore the message. You have that right to not listen to that if you don't want to, but it doesn't change that that's the way that people live in the world that we live in. Another big way that people define salvation in our culture is happiness. If you can just find happiness, the pursuit of happiness, if you can just be happy, you will know salvation. Have you experienced this? My guess in some ways, not only have you heard these things and maybe not put them together, but I'm sure some of you have. But isn't this what we think as well? You see, in some ways, the idea that sex can bring salvation or finding happiness can bring salvation or uh, finding purpose and, and meaning bring salvation shows every one of us, it shows us that we all have a sense of some greater purpose. All of us have a sense that there's something transcendent that's true, that it can't just be, my life can't just be about this moment. And if I can get a strong connection with another person, then I feel as though there's something bigger that's going on in my life. That I've connected with someone in such a deep way that I've been so vulnerable and intimate with them that I have found salvation. Surely you know what it's like to experience joy and happiness, right? You, surely you know what it, surely you've lived long enough that you've had moments when you have felt just horrible and did not want to get out of bed. Surely you've been there. Probably some of you this past week. And you know what it's like to, to turn the corner a little bit and find purpose. And then think, here it is. This is what I have wanted. Oftentimes our culture defines that as salvation. The problem is none of those things ever ultimately deliver, do they? Do they? There's nothing wrong in and of itself necessarily as wanting to be happy. Although we shouldn't live for our own individual happiness. The way that God defines that is that we ought to seek the joy of others. That's actually how he views intimacy as well, isn't it? You see, none of those things actually work. But unless we think about salvation in a very deep way, we will realize that we get sucked in too. Because even if we hear those things of purpose and, and physical intimacy and happiness and all the others that we could say, even if we could say that they're all wrong, the problem is that our hearts are still drawn that way. We, again, can know in our minds that salvation, that God's salvation is something radically different. And yet we live as if it's what God has done plus me seeking my own satisfaction. And maybe if that doesn't, maybe if that doesn't apply to you at all, what if we just think for a moment about how we even try to solve our problems? Because when you think about salvation... You're actually assuming that there's something to be saved from, right? 
So it's not just that we're trying to find salvation by physical intimacy or, or purpose or whatever else it is. It's also important to think about, well, how do I actually try to solve the problems that I see? Here are some answers. Sometimes we try to solve our problems by force, by, by just willing it to change. Have you been there? You have this problem in your life and you think to yourself, well, this is how I'm going to do it. I am just going to will this to change. Doesn't work out that great, does it? How about this? How about just more education? Well, if I just knew more, I could fix this problem. How about escaping? Instead of actually dealing with a problem, we just decide I'm going to escape. And that comes in all sorts of forms. Whether it's just neglecting responsibilities or whatever it is, we just escape. Things get too difficult. Things get too complicated. We know it's a problem. We don't know what to do, so we just escape and run. Other times we think economic improvement and on and on. Or here's another one. Blame shifting. We have these problems and we just blame someone else. Those of you that are married, if you don't think this is you, just ask your spouse. Now, maybe none of those are ways that you try to fix problems. Maybe those are just mine. But if we look at our lives, we have a tendency to, to define salvation in a completely different way and we have a completely different set of solutions to solve our problems. Now, again... Honestly, sometimes being a little bit more committed and having a little bit stronger backbone and a little bit greater will is not a bad thing. Men in particular, we need to have stronger backbones. We need to be men of conviction and integrity. It's absolutely true. But that's not the answer, is it? More education? Just in case, more education is always good. I don't want you to hear me saying, well, Dave said education isn't a, is a way to solve our problems, so we just need to be as dumb as possible. <laughs> but that comes in the form of ignorance as bliss sometimes, doesn't it? Is it important to learn always? We ought to always be students, always be learning. Look, is escaping all bad? Not insofar as if we're trying to get away and take a break, right? It's important to take a break. It's important to escape, not from responsibility. But it's important to get out and rest and gain perspective, isn't it? You see, these things aren't in themselves wrong. It's just that they're not the answer. But oftentimes we live as though they are. You see, God's way is to define salvation much different than we do. God has a way of solving problems that is very different than the way we as sinners typically try to solve problems. Do you know what God's answer to our problems is? Sacrifice. 
It's sacrifice. It's substitution. Jesus enters a troubled condition from the inside. He's not this rich philanthropist that just comes down and says, hey, I've got all these resources, let me just pull you out. No, he left heaven and he came into this world. He entered our troubled condition. He knows it from the inside. And he took to himself that troubled condition. He was willing to be treated as a sinner. And then in turn, he offers himself and says, your problems are a result of something that you cannot fix. We're absolutely responsible for our problems. We're absolutely responsible for not understanding salvation. And Jesus enters in and says, this is the answer. I am the answer. I am the sacrifice that you need. I am the substitute that you need. You see, that's how God views this meal. You understand? God looks at this meal and says, this is what I have done through sending my son. We take that. You see, when Jesus reads these words in 22 through 25, and we're going to do it in just a moment, you understand what's happening. It's not just God saying, this is salvation, and this is the solution to your problems. We share this meal. Do you see? We share the bread. We share the cup. We're sharing in Christ's body. We are sharing in Christ's blood. What we're saying when we come to the table is that we all need the same thing. We all need the cup. We all need the bread. We all need the blood of Christ. We all need his body. And it's not just that we share it, is it? It's that we actually take we take the bread, the bread is passed around, and we take the bread, and we take the cup. And when we take the bread, and we take the cup, what we're saying is that we are taking Christ as our Savior. We're taking him. We need his life, and we need his death. The solutions that I want to employ to solve my problems don't work. They cannot ultimately work. The way that I view salvation, the way that I want to live my life, doesn't work. I need this substitute. I need this person. And we share that as we gather here. And it's not just that we share, and it's not just that we actually take the bread and we take the cup. There's something else. You see, these are all separate actions, aren't they? You don't just take the bread, you eat the bread. You don't just take the cup, you drink what's in the cup. And you see, that is what removes this, what we're going to do from this abstract sense of, yes, Jesus is Savior, yes, yes, Jesus is Redeemer. It's actually taking him and then taking him in, eating and drinking. 
And that means that we're acknowledging that he is Savior and Lord, and specifically my Savior and Lord, and that by drinking and by eating, I am appropriating from him all of the blessings that come from his death, that I'm taking in forgiveness of my sins. I'm taking in hope. I'm taking in new life. I'm taking in power. I'm taking in pardon. In a fundamental sense, I am being defined by Jesus Christ. I'm taking him in. And as I take him in, what I am finding is forgiveness and pardon and hope and new life and power. But you see, the truth is embedded in here. So another truth is embedded in here as well. That it's incomplete. There's a reason why we have to take the table over and over. Because we're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We need to constantly repent and believe in Jesus. And we need to constantly take of this meal and take it until he returns because when he comes back, you see, that's what we're looking forward to. This meal is not just forgiveness and new life and hope and pardon and being defined by Christ. Is that one day I will be with him. And this meal, is, Jesus is saying, it's, it's not complete yet. There's something more that's coming. You see, that's what makes verse 18 so powerful, isn't it? That's the verse that we covered already where Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Because when you think about that verse, Jesus is calling us to examine ourselves, isn't he? One of you is going to betray me. He's calling the disciples out. He doesn't name anyone. Now, you reading it in 2014, if you know your Bibles a little bit, you know who he's talking about, don't you? But sitting right there at that meal and that evening, he didn't call out anyone's name. He just put all of them on notice. He put every one of them on notice. One of you is going to betray me. Now, maybe you haven't done this as parents, but I have. And not only employed this, was the recipient of it growing up. This is the I see you parenting moment. You know when your kids are little and they're going toward the stairs, I've used that kind of example before, and they're about to go up the stairs, and right when they got those two hands on the stairs and they got that one leg up, and then they look at you. You know this moment? It happens in thousands of different ways with children. Happen with me all the time in every sort of way you can imagine. Don't run. I'm at the ready. What Jesus is saying here is, I see you. I see you. Don't do it. Don't do it. One scholar said that this was the last great act of love that Jesus exhibited toward Judas. He's saying, come to me. It's not worth it. You see, why is this meal, 
Why is this meal showing us that Jesus sees our need and sees our lives more clearly than we do? Look at where it's placed. Before the meal happens, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And after the meal happens, he says, one of you is going to scatter. All of you are going to scatter. One of you is going to deny me. You're all going to fall away. Do you get that? He gives the meal in the middle. The reason why Jesus had to die is right in front of him. The reason why Jesus had to die is sitting in this room today. No, we're not going to deny Jesus this week. No, we're not going to run away. No, we would never do that. Jesus says, yes, you will. And I've given you this meal because I see your life. And I see your needs far more clearly than you do. Because in offering my life for you, my death actually becomes your life. And they didn't get it at the moment. But after this, they did. And beloved, I hope the same is for you and for me. Which brings us right to the table, doesn't it? You see, Jesus is saying, get out of yourself. Get out of yourself. Stop thinking that you can solve your problems and stop trying to, to define salvation in any other way than what I've given you and what I've said. This night that we just read about, the night that Jesus broke bread, was the same night that he was betrayed. The same night. It was also the same night that he was denied. It was the same night that his sheep would scatter and run away. And in that night, as he ate with his disciples, he actually took bread and he broke it, as I've read. And he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Share it. Take it. Eat it. This represents my body, which is for you. And in the same manner, he also took the cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood, which would be shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it, share it, drink it, and know that forgiveness is real, that new life is real, that pardon is real, because if you don't continue to remember that Jesus' death becomes your life, you will continue to live trying to find salvation in another way. You'll continue to try to find and solve your problems in every other way outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and in repenting and believing and trusting and taking him. I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'll ask the elders to come forward. And as you're thinking about this, that means that you need to think about whether or not you have taken Christ. 
whether or not what you know of Christ just comes from passing a test on a sheet of paper. Or whether in your heart of hearts, do you acknowledge that you're prone to deny him, you're prone to leave him, you're prone to be scattered away? Because if you know yourself as a sinner, then you need this table. If you know that you are a sinner and in need of forgiveness and hope, and that Jesus is the only way to find that, this table is for you. And if you're not at a point yet in which you're willing to acknowledge your sin and acknowledge that you need Christ as your Savior and you need his death to define you, then don't come to the table yet. This table isn't for you, but hear me. Hear me clearly. Christ is. He really does know your life. He really does see your problems far more clearly than you do. Think on him. And those of you that are little, you children, think about this too. We haven't forgotten about you. We love you. And we want you to know that you need Jesus too. You aren't too young. Maybe you have experienced before your parents saying, hey, I see you. You know what it means to disobey. Well, just know that you can talk to your parents about that. You can talk to the elders of this church about that. And we love for you to also acknowledge that Christ sees you and that he loves you and that he has given himself for you too. Even though you might think you're young, Christ loves children. Elders, will you come forward? I'll pray. Our Father...